This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Today we are surrounded by more readily available information than ever before. A huge percentage of it is inaccurate. Some of the bad information is well-meaning, but ignorant. Some of it is deliberately deceptive. All of it is pernicious. With the internet always at our fingertips, what's a teacher of history to do? Sam Weinberg has answers, beginning with this. We definitely can't stick to the same old read the chapter, answer the questions at the back snooze fest we've subjected students to for decades. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Subscribe to the Van Leer series on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere you find your podcasts. I'm pleased to welcome Sam Weinberg to the show today to talk about his recent book with a provocative title, Why Learn History When It's Already on Your Phone. Sam Weinberg is the Margaret Jacks Professor of Education and History at Stanford University and the author of Historical Thinking and Other Unnatural Acts. He's also a visiting lecturer at the School of Educational Leadership at the Mandel Foundation. Sam Weinberg, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Before we begin, Sam, tell us a little bit about yourself. Was there someone or something that strongly influenced your intellectual development? Oh my goodness, what a question. Of course, of course. Uh, I'll begin with my dad, who never went to college, but was a voracious reader. And I was surrounded as a young child by magazines and books and a general sense of curiosity about the world. And so that was the first biggest impression on my own intellectual curiosity and a a desire to read everything I could get my hands on. So that really started it off. Unfortunately, my father passed when I was only 10. So, uh, but that early influence stuck with me. That was a powerful start. Well, let's dive right into your book. Let's start with the most fundamental question. Why is it important for ordinary people, not just scholars, to learn history at all? I think that I can answer that. Uh, I can do no better than, uh, than a quote from Cicero who said, not to know what happened before one was born is to always remain a child. And 
a sense of of how we came to be who we are is absolutely connected to our understanding of what came before us. So not knowing history is to essentially wander the earth without any roots, without any understanding of the of where the dilemmas that we currently face, how they came to be, or even the kinds of solutions to that have addressed them in the past that have been tried and perhaps failed or succeeded partially. So again, it's it's try to imagine someone whose memory is completely eclipsed. Every day is like Groundhog Day. Every day is is relearning everything about the world. And so an understanding of history gives us a sense of context and gives us gives us a sense of rootedness. Now, there's these old bromides of those who don't know the past. It's the Santiana quote, the, those right. who don't know the past are condemned to repeat it. Again, I think that, you know, there is no proof that we don't commit the same kinds of errors. We, you know, the, the human species has certain built-in foibles that they do uh, end up committing the same kind of errors. But Wisdom is tied to an understanding of why, and that's the kind of wisdom that an understanding of history endows us with. And what's the difference between the way fact-checkers at news organizations, for example, examine information they find online, and the way historians deal with digital content? No, that's a big question. That's That's a question that already already brings us into the difference between an analog and a digital world. And um, it's something that uh, my, my current research actually addresses. Well, I mean, let's begin with the, the classical uh, definition of historical research in an archive, where historians are dealing with pieces of the past that have been, that have escaped the erosion of time, and that have ended up in some type of archive. Now, again, obviously, there's historians who deal with archaeological evidence, but let's talk about the historians, the vast majority of historians who deal with some type of documentary evidence. Those shreds of evidence from the past are sometimes cluttered in an archive, sometimes collected in a box, but they are static, if you will. They are just resting. The digital world is a completely different world. We, we have no idea what we're looking at. We have no idea who produced it. It's not been organized. Um, it's not been vetted. There are no guardrails. There are no safeguards. And so, you know, really the question that you're raising, the way that I interpret the question is, is, is even a, a much, in a much broader way, what's the difference between the analog world and the digital world. And that gets us into a whole set of, of distinctions that I don't even think that many of us haven't really even grasped because the technology has changed so rapidly that um, in many cases, we're still behind the eight ball. Well, false information and, and deception uh, and, uh, and misdirection wasn't invented by the internet. So is it just a question of magnitude that we have so much information and no way, no way to vet it and know where it came from? 
so it's a question of degree or is it a question of kind compared with historical data? It's a question of both. So you're absolutely right. Um, I always, I always refer to a quote by Thomas Jefferson who, uh, who faced no small amount of misinformation in his day. Um, it was a time of the penny press, of broadsides that littered the sidewalk, and where the standards of journalism that we've kind of come to understand in modernity did not obtain during that time. And so journalism was, in many ways, a sensationalistic enterprise. Um, so yes, misinformation has been around at least since... Uh, Herodotus. Um, and so in that sense, there is a continuity with things that are false being propagated to the masses. What the internet has introduced is a whole set of con considerations that not merely uh, up the volume and uh, increase the amount of misinformation that we're dealing with, but the, the spread and rapidity, the idea that that some teenager sitting in, a, uh, in his living room in Macedonia can create a message that circulates around the entire globe in a matter of minutes is something that's mind-boggling. And then if we begin to think about uh, the manipulation of things that like deep fakes, where we have images of actual people, but we change what they say, and it's very, very difficult to decipher the difference between a what the person actually has said and the deep fake. These are things that technology has afforded. The ability to deceive, the ability to, um, to spread one's message, and the rapidity that that goes on, these things uh, came with the advent of the internet and have created a kind of confusion that the human race has not really dealt with in its own long history. And is there any way to know the source of online information? Well, yes, there is. <laughs> I mean, it's the, the, I, I refer to an insight by the, uh, a philosopher at the University of Connecticut named Michael Lynch. And he wrote a very, very perceptive uh, column in the New York Times several years ago that was very prescient in the kinds of things that he predicted. But he has one line in there that is extremely powerful and I think very, very telling and ultimately true, that the internet is the world's best bias confirmer and the world's best fact checker, both at the same time. And so on one hand, you have a technological wonder that has brought great confusion to many, many people and created the kind of acts of violence, for instance, that we know about what happened in, uh, in, in, in Miramar with the Rohingya and the way that Facebook was used to foment violence that led to bloodshed. At the same time, as having a technological tool that if we know how to navigate it, we can dramatically improve our chances at getting at 
something that is reliable and closer to the truth than we've ever been able to as quickly at any other time. So you have a a kind of two sides of the coin here. You have a mechanism that spreads mischief and confusion at the same time as being a mechanism that allows us, if we know how to navigate it, allows us insight into whether a particular message should be believed or rejected. And do you have some tips or uh, can you share some insight into how one can distinguish truth from lie online? Or even more than truth and lie, know where the information came from. Well, so uh, I can refer uh, uh, for the, your listeners' benefit. Uh, let me let me let me go back to your first question, or uh, or expand your first question. Um, I am an applied psychologist, even though I write about historical understanding. Uh, my doctoral training is in. Uh, a program called Psychological Studies of Education, where I was, I was trained as an applied cognitive psychologist. So I, r- rather than going into archives and doing historical work, I engage in empirical studies where I try to understand how people think. And the work that we've been doing since 2015 has been work that tries to understand the difference between those people who go on the internet to research a particular claim and after 10 minutes are spinning themselves in circles and throwing up their hands saying, I don't know what to believe. And individuals who we might call the virtuosos of the internet, those people who are able to, in a matter of seconds, get to the kernel of truth that Normal, intelligent, critically thinking adults are still wandering about, wondering, I don't know what to believe. So I can answer your question by referring to a study that we did. Uh, It began in 2017, where we compared groups of smart people. Now, I purposely say smart people because... Often, a lot of people will say, well, we just need to teach critical thinking in school. And if we, you know, if we all could teach the methods of Socrates, then we would not be in the mess that we're in today. No, I don't <laughs> want to deny the importance of logical, critical thinking and the, the importance of being able to dissect an argument. But I also want to suggest that if we were to get a necromancer and bring Socrates back to life, he would not understand the importance of keywords. He would not understand the phenomenon of of, uh, search engine optimization and the way that, that, that results on your browser have been massaged in order to bring some of them to the top and others push others to the bottom. He would not be able to understand how to read Google's snippets. He would not understand the difference between top-level domains, between .org and .gov. There's many things that Socrates would not be able to understand that are absolutely crucial to a, to a, a reasonable 
navigation of today's internet. I'm not even going to, going to say sophisticated because the things I'm talking about are really at base knowledge of knowing about the particular digital medium in which we operate. So to go back to your question, let me distinguish, and it goes back to an earlier distinction that I mentioned, the difference between an analog and a digital world. What many, what in the study that we did, we compared Stanford undergraduates. Now, I, 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 I'm incredibly privileged to teach at an institution that rejects about 95% of the young people that apply. Stanford University could fill its class with valedictorians of every high school in the United States, but doesn't. It rejects the vast majority of them. In order to create a, a class, in, in, in many cases, of extraordinary young people. So we, 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 we drafted into our sample a group of Stanford undergraduates, and then we compared them to a group of PhD historians from five different universities. And then we compared those two groups to a group of professional fact checkers at the United States' most prestigious news outlets between Washington, D.C. and New York City. Now, I can't tell you the names of them, but if you were to guess, you'd probably be right. <laughs> yeah. And what did we find? We found that the, the academics and the Stanford students looked like each other in the way that they approached the Internet. They engaged in something that we call vertical reading. We showed them a website about a topic that they, we, we created a scenario. We said, you know, some, a loved one, a child, a friend, your sibling is being bullied in middle school. What do you do? So here's a website that says, bullying at school, never acceptable. And it is from a group called the American College of Pediatricians. Now, it's an official-looking website. It's got an official-looking logo. Uh, the article is laid out in the way of a scientific article where there's an abstract and subsections, and then there are scientific references at the bottom of the article. Now, what did, what did both, in many cases, the academics and the Stanford students do? They read this text, this digital text, like they would read a print text. They began at the top. They checked out the information to see if it accorded with their sense of back, their own background knowledge, their sense of propriety, what they would expect. Uh, it says, the, the article says that all children should be treated with respect. No child should be singled out for any special characteristics. And it goes on to lay out a whole series of of prescriptions of how to deal with, with bullying. Now, what did the professional fact checkers do? When they came to this site, an unfamiliar site to them, they learned about the site, ironically and paradoxically, not by reading it, but by leaving it. In other words, when your eyes deceive you on the internet if something is unfamiliar. If you're going to the Wall Street Journal, if you're going to the, the Center for uh, uh, Disease Control, then you know what that site is. But if you come to a site that you don't know, even though it has a fancy name and a .org top-level domain, you really don't know 
what it is. And so what a fact checker does is rather than investing attention, now think, think about we are in, the, the, the internet has created an attention economy. The thing that the internet wants is it wants us, our eyeballs on the screen. That's the business model of Facebook. It's the business model of TikTok. It's the business model of Twitter. It's the business model of YouTube. And what inform, the, 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 the Nobel laureate Herbert Simon said, what attention, what information consumes is attention. And so we are in a time of a scarcity of attention. And what fact checkers do is they preserve their attention. And so rather than spending a whole bunch of time on a website that they don't know anything about, what they do is they engage in the opposite of vertical reading, which we call lateral reading. They open up new tabs so it's a it's a it's an image it's a visual image. They open up new tabs across the horizontal uh, uh, axis of their screen, and the first thing they do is they investigate what is this American College of Pediatricians. And in this case, very quickly when you do that, I mean it's not it's not rocket science, but it is a fundamentally different approach to text to information. And so what you learn very quickly is that the American College of Pediatricians has been condemned as a radical anti-LGBT group by people no less famous than Francis S. Collins, the head of the National Institutes of Health. By It's been labeled a hate group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. And very quickly you learn it is not the main group of pediatricians. It is a small splinter group that broke off from the American from the American Academy of Pediatricians over the issue of adoption by same-sex couples. And so is this a reliable site to invest your attention? No, there are much better sources of information on the internet. And this is something that fact checkers learn in less than 30 seconds. Well, that's very, very helpful and very instructive. And it's interesting to me that those fact checkers are journalists or they're working in a news kind of environment because journalism itself has changed a lot. Uh, in modern times, journalism was supposed to be, reporting was supposed to be uh, who, what, when, where, uh, why, and how. I think I have an extra question in there. But now journalists are expected and assumed uh, to construct a narrative about what the, they're reporting on. Uh, so tell us about what the difference is between events viewed through the discipline of history and a narrative of those events. Well, there's a great deal of overlap between the two, right? So uh, there, it's, it's not... Uh, incidental that embedded in the word history is histoire, uh, uh, the, the word from, for story. And so, you know, the, it's interesting. It's something that I, I talk about with, um, I, I teach a class for future history teachers, and we do a little bit of etymological work on the word history. And if you think about it, the word history actually has several different meanings that are embedded within it. The classical one that I just mentioned is histoire, where, where we are telling a story. But it's interesting. The, 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 etym the etymology of the word comes from the Greek istor, uh, 
which the best translation we have for that in English is inquiry. So how do we get from inquiry, uh, an examination, to story? Well, the inquirer would go and inquire into the causes uh, or the sequence of events. And then at the, as the inquiry came to its conclusion, the way that we understand, in fact, one of our most basic understandings is to tell a story. So there's a connection between the act of inquiry and the creation of a narrative. But that's not where the, the, the meanings of the word history end. So interestingly enough, there are many people that, that associate the word story, S-T-O-R-E-Y, the story of a building, also with the word history. And how? what's the connection there? Well, if you think about it, if you have a building of 10 stories, if you look out at an event from the 10th story, as opposed to the ground floor, you're looking at the same event, but you're seeing very different things. In other words, you're seeing things from very different points of perspective. And something that is crucial to historical understanding is to understand an event, not from a singular perspective, but from multiple perspectives. So there's where the the the, the aspect of story, S-T-O-R-E-Y, comes in. And then finally, there's the word store, where we, we store our most precious memories, our most uh, hallowed events. So the idea that history also preserves. So in that sense, there is an overlap. I mean, there's history. What what boggles my mind is when very intelligent people say, um, that's not history. That story is not history. Um, stories are aspects of history. Uh, in the United States, the the perhaps the person who's brought a love of history to more people than any other is Ken Burns, the filmmaker. And he is at his heart a storyteller. One of the problems with the academic industry of history is so much of it um, has become so analytic and focused on things other than the art of storytelling that in many cases it's, it's, it's lost a public audience. But uh, in reading your book, I learned that uh, not all histories are created equal. Uh, what's wrong with uh, highly influential, once considered radical, but now mainstream book, A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn? Well, before I say anything that has a whiff of critique, um, one has to honor the memory of a man who who brought uh, knowledge of history to many people who would never have picked up a history book. Howard Zinn wrote uh, a book that gave voice to the voiceless at a time when much of the historical research that that he used remained in in uh, in narrowly circulated academic journals, and so there is practically no original research. There is no. I, I think I'm going to go out on a limb and say there is no original historical research, and by that I mean uh, the the 
the production of historical knowledge based on unexamined archives or unexamined evidence. There is nothing new in a people's history of the United States by Howard Zinn. The brilliance of the book is Zinn's ability to tell stories and to synthesize a massive amount of scholarship that was unknown to, I mean, it was known to the to the history community, but it was unknown to someone who went to public school and learned history by state-sanctioned history books. And so that was the brilliance of Zen. And I think before I say anything about the book, I think we have to honor both the accomplishment and the memory of a man who did a great deal for the historical profession. Now, why did I write a chapter in the book um, that is called Committing Zins. And obviously, it's a, a kind of tongue-in-cheek committing sins. And so, what are the sins that Zin committed? The, the problem with a people's history of the United States is that the conclusions are already known, and the conclusions pursue evidence that already supports them. In other words, this is a book that begins with ordinary people uh, who are being downtrodden by the forces of power and capitalism. And in every single instance of every single uh, epoch of history that is discussed in the book, the people are always right. And the legislators and the rulers and the upper class are always the villains. So um, a historian at Georgetown University, Michael Kazin, uh, wrote uh, also another critique. And we should, we should note that Kazin, his leftist credentials are unimpeachable. He uh, was for a long time the editor of the, of the journal Dissent, a left-wing journal. He, he calls a people's history uh, a Manichaean tale. And if you're familiar with the, the Manichees, the Manichees were a religious cult at the time of St. Augustine. And they believed that there was a good God and a demiurge, uh, uh, the, the forces of light and the forces of darkness. And Zinn's book, in many ways, has two sides. It has the forces of goodness and the forces of darkness. And in some ways, the, the, if, the critique that I issue is about um, writing history by numbers. It is having your conclusions already set and then adducing the evidence that supports conclusions that have been presupposed even before you start the historical inquiry. And I think that that is dangerous. And I even go so far as to say that in many cases, what, what the book does is it, it creates a, a circus mirror inverted view of the traditional state-sanctioned textbook. There's very little nuance. There's, there's um, the, the phrase, on the other hand, the phrase, the, the admissions of doubt 
when we do not know really the full extent of the evidence, which is something that's absolutely crucial to historical understanding. There is a a a late historian, J.H. Hexter, who was a professor of history first at at Washington University in St. Louis and then at Yale. He wrote a book called The History Primer. And in that book, he has a chapter called The Rhetoric of Must. And what he means by the word must is when you look at well-crafted historical narratives, where a historian is trying to recreate the thinking process of a historical actor, the historian in creating that narrative will often say, uh, Julius Caesar must have thought. Now, what does that must mean? That must is an open admission by the historian that it is the imagination of the historian trying to think about what Caesar thought rather than what the evidence dictates. And it is a way for the historian to put her cards on the table and say, the evidence doesn't say this. I am filling in through my imagination and my deep understanding of what I'm of the subject. I am filling in the gaps and using the word must when the evidence does not permit anything stronger. And so those kinds of hedges uh, must have felt or might have felt or might have been or perhaps or on the other hand, which are the stock in trade of the humility of historical writing, because history by definition, when we're writing about the past, has gaps. Those indications of uncertainty and in many cases, invitations to the reader to challenge an interpretation Those are the very things that you do not find in a people's history of the United States for all of its good qualities. And those things are necessary if we're going to have historically educated people. Uh, And uh, ever since I can remember, there's been public uh, hand-wringing about how ignorant American students are about the basics the basics in many arenas, but certainly the basics of American history. So I found it especially refreshing to read your argument uh, in support of American students, that showing that they're not as hopelessly ignorant as their test scores might indicate. Explain to us why you believe testing principles and practices result in scores that don't really tell us the truth about what students actually know. Well, let me begin, first of all, with the evidence. Since I just talked about evidence, uh, let, me, let me assure the listeners that I'm not telling tales out of school. So when you go back into the archive, and this is something that I actually I, I have done, and you, you create a history of history testing, we can, for instance, let's 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 do it in reverse chronological order. Let's let's go to the first. Um, uh, there is a, a a national testing regime in the United States called the National uh, NAEP, National Assessment of Educational Progress, and the first time that that test extended to history and literature was in 1989, and they came up with this notion that American students are woefully ignorant of their past and much more ignorant than they've ever been. Uh, 
And then we can go to uh, 1976, uh, the, the bicentennial of the United States. And there was a survey that was done by, uh, that was uh, advised by the Harvard historian Bernard Balin. And you have a similar kind of hand-wringing on 1976 of American students don't know their past. And then we can go to the, uh, uh, in the middle of uh, World War II, I think it's 1942, there was a New York Times survey of college freshmen. And it discovered that college freshmen, I think that the headlines uh, read uh, college freshmen or college students ignorant of the most basic facts of American history. Now, you can then go back even farther and find this quote. Uh, A score of 33 out of 100 is a result that no secondary school or no high school should be proud of. And I, I always flash that quote. On, on any kind of presentation that I give about this topic. And I ask my audience, does this quote come from, uh, is it recent? Is it 2020? Is it uh, 1976? Is it 1942? And it actually comes from the first large scale test of American history that was given to Texas high school students and university students in 1916 to 1917. Now it was a a time it was a time when very few students went to university and very less than 10% of the population even went to high school so we're talking about a very elite group and even at that time you found adults wearing sackcloth and ashes over the ignorance of their youngsters now I think when you see that consistency, when you see that this is a, a, a ritual that every generation participates in and they all come up with the same conclusion, you have to ask yourself, is there something about giving 16-year-olds decontextualized facts that have been extirpated from a narrative and giving them in the form of quickly uh, recall this knowledge. Is there something about that act that does not put 16-year-olds on the best footing? And so the sociologist Michael Shudson, who uh, teaches at the uh, University of California, San Diego, has a very lovely quote, a very lovely image that I, I often refer to. He says that cultural and historical knowledge ha- that that kind of knowledge has a way of seeping into our cultural pores in ways that are not easily examined by a 16-year-old with a number two pencil answering a test. And so there are other ways of trying to examine what young people know and think um, than these kinds of tests that in many ways will always show. And I, let, me, let me point out that it's not only in the United States. There are similar tests like this in Australia. There are similar tests like this in Canada. There's a book called Who Killed Canadian History? There are tests like this in the, in, in, uh, the United Kingdom. There have been surveys like this in Israel. There is a, there is a particular kind of glee 
that adults derive from giving tests to young people and saying, back in our day, we knew a great deal of history. Well, the only thing really that's true about that statement is a, is a, a bit of historical amnesia. Because when you look at the data that across generations, no generation has performed well on these kinds of examinations. It's a phenomenon of that old movie that had a song whose refrain was, what's the matter with kids today? Uh, Very much so, yes. (laughs) But there have been many programs, serious programs, to try to educate uh, children and adolescents uh, in in a better way. Uh, One of those programs, the Teaching American History Program, was a huge multi-million dollar federal program for the professional development of history teachers, which seems like a, a good way to go if you want to improve the quality of teaching and learning. But that program failed to produce improvement in student understanding of history. Why was it such a colossal failure, an expensive failure? Was it, was it just that the tests were inappropriate? Or was there something deeper going on? Well, as I write in the book, I call that chapter obituary for a billion dollars. And this was, as you say, a very expensive program. From uh, 2001 to 2011, when when the, uh, the program was aborted, over a billion dollars was spent, one billion dollars, on teacher professional development for the teaching of American history. Now, complex failures usually usually have a set of complex causes. And in this case, a variety of things came together that really doomed this program. Um, First of all, the program was, was kind of begun. It was, it was conceived in sin, if you will. If, if sin, if we define sin as the telling of a lie, then it was conceived in sin. Robert Byrd, the senator from West Virginia, who got up in, in the halls of Congress and started uh, talking about how ignorant today's young people are. Again, it goes back to what I just previously said, this, this widespread belief that, that, that today's generation is going to pot, that students don't know what he knew. And so without looking at the evidence, but by kind of proclaiming conventional wisdom that in many cases was flawed, this program set out to, we need to teach students more history and the basic history and the facts and that type of thing. Well, this program was foisted on the Department of Education. There were uh, just a two people in the United States uh, Department of Education who were given responsibility primarily for uh, administering a whole lot of money. It was like a shotgun marriage. It was like quickly thrown together um, where you had people who whose experience in the Department of Ed was based not on history, but based on other kinds of things, on special education, on other kinds of things. All of a sudden, they were given responsibility for thinking about the uh, about how to administer a program like this, but it 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 gets more complex than that. Um, there were there were saviors and villains 
in the, the original conception of the program. The saviors were the keepers of knowledge, the professional historians who were going to endow school teachers with their knowledge. And so the villains were uh, generally anybody who had to do anything, anything to do with education, teachers or the trainers of teachers or faculty in schools of education, they are traditionally a good whipping boy. They are usually, if they're if 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 schools of education are on a university campus, they're often uh, derided as places of low quality, uh, and so they're they're very easily they're very easy scapegoats. And so, in the early years of this program, essentially what the professional development looked like was taking hi- university historians and taking them off of the Mount Olympus of the university campus and bringing them to schools or to special kind of uh, summer institutes and essentially having them lecture to school teachers. Now, what might work with college students doesn't necessarily work with a group of, you know, squirmy 13 and 14 year olds um, who are often unwilling to sit for 55 minutes and listen to a frontal lecture by someone doling out knowledge. And so while the teachers may have learned more, the act of school teaching with adolescents is an act of creative engagement. And so the fact that teachers might have known more about the American Revolution or the French Revolution did not necessarily translate into their effectiveness <coughs> as classroom pedagogues. And so the results of the program, which uh, the early evaluations essentially showed no significant difference between those teachers and those schools who had participated in the program and those who had not. So that's sort of a quick overview of how the program set off on the wrong foot and by the time it started to realize its faults, the program was largely defunded. In contrast to that disaster of a program, now tell us about your breakthrough digital program that had kids in large urban public school classes excited and engaged in history, and by the way, also raised their reading scores too. Well, this we had been experimenting. I moved from the University of Washington to Stanford uh, uh, in 2001. And I was given the responsibility at Stanford for overhauling the program for preparing future teachers of history. And my belief, uh, and it wasn't simply my belief, it was you know a, a, an understanding that had been built up through years of reading historiography and reading history and interacting with historians, was that there's something extremely passive about reading set narratives, that you are a spectator to other people's conclusions rather than being an actual player on in the arena, kicking the ball and engaging in the act of inquiry. And I begin with a, 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 a kind of insight. It's more of a normative insight rather than uh, something that's empirical. That when people are engaged in making something, that they, their brains and their whole bodies 
are more committed to what they are doing when they are making it rather than sitting and watching somebody else make something. The difference between being a player and being a spectator. And so we started to develop an approach where students examine legitimate historical questions, questions that historians still debate, and they are given the actual primary source evidence and sometimes secondary source evidence of of competing interpretations, competing positions, competing perspectives. And students are asked to make thoughtful decisions about what the evidence actually permits one to say. And so we called the approach reading like historian and first we 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 implemented it in uh with new teachers with teachers with young people who uh were preparing to be history teachers. But it really it kind of stayed small scale like that. Um until I had a doctoral student named Abhishek Reisman, Abby Reisman, who is now a professor of teacher education at the University of Pennsylvania. And she had been uh, she had been a history major at Brown University, and she came to do her PhD with me because she she had come to the same kind of conclusions that that I had that that we needed to do something different in the classroom besides besides giving kids a textbook and having them answer the questions at the at the at the back. And so she came into our program and saw the kind of of projects that we were were working on. And she had the idea of let's test this out in a large scale school district. So we obtained some grant money and we uh, approached San Francisco Unified Schools who agreed to do a large scale experiment across five different high schools where some of the teachers were trained in the approach and others of the teachers taught the conventional curriculum. And uh, Abby built on, a, on many of the, the lessons that we had created. For instance, uh, there's, it's, it's often taught in American schools uh, that the, the myth or the, the, the story of Pocahontas saving John Smith at the Jamestown colony in the, in the, the early part of the 17th century. And uh, you'll find it in every textbook that Pocahontas saved John Smith. He was about to be killed. Well, actually, it's a really interesting question because the documentary evidence is unclear. And the only, the only documents we have are from John Smith. And John Smith uh, reports about this event in one of his, uh, in his books, in a 1624 book. But in the first time that he talks about his encounter with the Powhatans in the Jamestown colony, there's no mention of it. So it's unclear. Is this something he, he, he the 1624 book is when he already returns to, to England, he's penurious, he needs to uh, make money. Is this a kind of salacious a story that he integrates into his, his, his uh, memoirs in order to sell books? Or is this something that did happen that he was reluctant to talk about in 1609 because it was a different time and Jamestown was still trying to attract colonists at that point. So again, it's an interesting question. Well, what would happen if we gave that evidence to to students where they had to think about it and to think about some of the secondary uh, uh, histories, secondary sources that have written about it? Well, Abby took that kind of template and built other lesson plans and did a large-scale six-month experiment. And at the end of six months, students were tested on historical facts, on, on uh, historical thinking skills, where we gave them documents that, that they had to analyze, 
And then we gave them a conventional reading measure, uh, a a reading test called the Gates-McKinty, which was a widely used validated reading measure. Because we had this hypothesis that if students are really engaged in a curriculum where they're carefully analyzing documents, that they would grow in their appreciation and their ability to engage in close reading. And we might actually see an effect on their reading scores compared to conventional history classrooms where students are kind of meandering in the textbook. Well, it turns out on all of the measures that we gave, students significantly improved. Um, Now, this is extremely interesting. There was actually on the test of historical facts, there was no difference which is interesting because given how much more time our units took where students are investigating uh, documents, they did not cover a whole bunch of things that were in the conventional history curriculum. So the fact that there were not decreases in factual knowledge is somewhat wondrous because students did simply did not get to a, a uh, chapters in the textbook that other students got to. But what they did study, they retained in a, in a Velcro-like way because their engagement with the material was much deeper. Now, what surprised the school district, and I, I must say it was a bit of a gamble on our part, was this idea that there, we might see an increase in reading scores. And it turned out that our hypothesis was correct, that the act of spending time really investigating and analyzing sources will lead to Uh, an increase and growth in the ability to deal with complex text. Um, It sounds commonsensical, but it was, it was, it was a gamble when we, we engaged in it. So that was really the beginning. Uh, It was Abby Reisman's dissertation on, on uh, the reading like historian program. Now where it changed is, is what came afterwards. What came afterwards was the, uh, the school the school district, San Francisco Unified, said, oh, my goodness, um, we can actually use the history classroom to teach students to read better. And they said, um, we want this curriculum up on a website so that all of the teachers, either the teachers who didn't participate in the experiment, that they can they can use it. So um, we said, well, you know, that, that's great. But, you know, to, to create a website, uh, it costs money. And. Uh, I, I and, and Abby and my research team had already gone on to uh, other greener pastures because that's sort of what university research is. It's grant-based, and we had gotten grants for doing new projects. And so I said to them, you know, uh, if you want this, then you're going to have to – I don't have deep pockets. The Stanford doesn't you know, pay me to, to do these kinds of things. They, I have to go out and get grants. So if you, you want this, you need to give us, and I came up with a number. I had never created a website before. I didn't know. I said, uh, find us a, a $20,000. And much to my surprise, they came up with the money for a subject like history, which is often underfunded compared to science and math. And really, that's where the story begins. The story begins by, we put these materials up on the web. And It turns out that after four or five months, not only San Francisco teachers were downloading them, teachers from all over the country. After about uh, eight months, we had close to a quarter of a million downloads. After a year and a half, we had a half million. Uh, After about before two years, we we were coming up on our one millionth download of the curriculum. Today, we are at 11 million downloads 
of not only this curriculum, but of new kinds of assessments than anybody listening to this can find at our website uh, of the Stanford History Education Group, which is sheg.stanford.edu. And you'll see the full menu of resources, including the digital resources that we use for teaching digital literacy, all on our website, all for free, that all you need to do is kind of red, put your name down, register, and you can download all of our materials to your heart's desire. That is fabulous. And thank, thank you for sharing that. I think uh, a lot of teachers who listen will be very encouraged. Um, finally, Sam, do you have any advice for those of us no longer in school uh, to help us separate fact from fiction when we read history in the making, which is also known as news and current events? Well, I want to leave you with a very practical tip, but I want anybody listening to this to be sitting down because I'm going to say something extremely controversial at this point. When you come across a historical claim, let me give you a quick example that there were thousands of African-Americans who during the Civil War suited up in Confederate greys and fought on behalf of the Confederacy. A surprising claim. It comes across your Facebook feed. You say, could that be? And you don't want to go and spend hours and hours and hours investigating this. You do not want to turn it into your life's work. What is one of the quickest fact checks you can do? And here's the controversial thing I'm going to say. You should look up the topic of Black Confederates. And the first place you should go is, people are sitting down, Wikipedia. Wikipedia is a modern marvel. It is not your grandfather's Wikipedia from 2003. Wikipedia is now has huge safeguards for the kinds of errors that characterized it in its early years. When you go to Google and you, you uh, Google a topic, you will get on their knowledge panel from Wikipedia. When you ask Siri on your iPhone about where are the Madeira Islands, it will say, according to Wikipedia. When you ask Amazon's Alexa uh, about how many elements are in the periodic table, it will say, according to Wikipedia. Wikipedia, yes, still has problems. Please do not troll me. Yes, there are still errors in Wikipedia. But, but when it is a well-trafficked topic that is controversial, Wikipedia is one of the quickest, best fact checks you can do on today's internet. It is a modern marvel. And the more people that check it about a particular claim, the better it is. That's really very helpful and very reassuring. Thank you so much for your insights and your experience, Sam. Before we close, can you tell us briefly what you're working on right now? The projects my team members and I are working on uh, really can be summarized as how to save democracy. Oh, a we small, are trying to, a small we challenge. Are, <laughs> we are trying to figure out how the tools we can give to ordinary people to help them make better judgments about the endless stream of messages that flow across their screen. Well, I 
give you my heartfelt best wishes for good luck with that project. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.